Welcome to the inaugural episode of Cold Turkey, a podcast from the Turkish Heritage Organization, hosted in part by myself, Andrew Carpenter, and my colleague Megan Dashkin. We are both non-resident fellows at the Turkish Heritage Organization. This is a podcast focusing on Turkish nationalism, how that affects Turkish foreign policy, and Turkey's relationship with the United States. Our first guest today in a series of interviews will be with another non-resident fellow, Joe Lombardo. Joe, how you doing? Hey guys, how are you? Well, thanks so much for being here, Joe. Uh, we're hoping, just to start us off, if you could explain to us the difference between two men. Turkey's first leader, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, in 1923, he led Turkey through a series of cultural, military, economic, and linguistic transformations. And then another man, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's current president. Um, two men of very similar popularity, but very different politics. I'm wondering if you could maybe set the stage for us and describe the differences between these two leaders. Yeah. Um, okay, sure. Well, first of all, you know, Megan and Andrew, thanks for having me on. Well, the differences between Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, or just Mustafa Kemal, and Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, they bear significant differences, um, first and foremost, with uh, Mustafa Kemal, there was an explicit push for a lacist policy or a sort of a French style secularism in Turkey um, from the 1920s onward, where basically the state you know presides over uh, religious affairs. They sort of regulate um, mosques, they regulate um, madrasas and things of that nature. And it was very important for other Turks, not necessarily to uh, abolish Islam from the public eye, but more to sort of control it. So in some ways, there is a continuity there with uh, Tayyip or President Erdogan in the sense that uh, for him, he also wishes to control the sort of religious sphere there. Uh, But for him, it's a little bit of a different angle in the sense that he wants to see it much more um, vibrant in public and political life in Turkey. So that's those. Those are kind of two areas where they both are similar and different. Uh, nationalism, of course, is a bit tricky. Erdogan went through a period. He's he's been president or prime minister first two thousand two. Right, he's now president. Um, there was a small period where he was bashing the notion of nationalism uh, in the public discourse, but by and large, most premiers, prime ministers, presidents of Turkey. Uh, all are sort of nationalists. Um, I think it might be helpful, perhaps, if I maybe take a little bit about the history of, of what that might look like, if that's okay. Please. So, first and foremost, to make more sense of that, I think it's important to note that nationalism in Turkey is the default ideology and political worldview of the country and its citizens, or at least most of them. Um, Turkish nationalism, or milliyetçilik in Turkish, is part of the European constellation of political ideologies, which began to emerge in the late 19th century and really came to fruition with the creation of the Republic of Turkey, as you mentioned, Andrew, in 1923. So Mustafa Kemal is arguably seen by many in Turkey as sort of like the embodiment of nationalism. And indeed, uh, it is considered, Milyacilik is considered one of the six arrows or Altaok that was to become the guiding state ideology of the republic. So Turkish nationalism is really baked into the foundational principles of the country. Um, what it means to be a nationalist in Turkey is therefore a somewhat broad appellation. You know, it could be it can mean that you could hold center left ideas, 
or even center to far right ideas. So you can have people in one of the big parties, uh, JAP, for example, the Republican People's Party. It's perfectly acceptable to call yourself a nationalist there, or even within AKP as of recent, and certainly Mehepe. So I think, unlike Europe or North America, you know, we're calling yourself a nationalist is most likely going to garner a somewhat negative response for most people. Um, saying that you're a Milietchi or nationalist in Turkey won't really evoke much surprise, you know, unless you're in the company of sort of European facing cosmopolitan Turks in Istanbul or Izmir or, you know, extremely devout Sunnis. Um, now, there is a sort of equivalent to nationalism of what we might hear in the U.S., and that is a term called ukuju or idealist. Uh, this, I think, more closely approximates to what fascism is in Turkey. And so it's important to note, too, that, you know, within the kind of think tank sphere in you know, D.C., London, Paris, you will hear and read quite a few observers and analysts of Turkey um, deploy this term ultra-nationalist. But I think this has very little analytical value and is sort of a blunt concept that almost seems kind of acceptable, so to speak. Like, to my mind, when I hear ultra-nationalist, I'm just thinking that it's someone who is extra-nationalist. And that really doesn't lend itself to a scientific study of what Turkish fascism or Turkish ultranationalism really is. So, you know, for the sake of the podcast and going, I'll just sort of translate Ukuju as fascist in order to provide some sense of familiarity with the term. Um, and it really is like European fascism. I mean, they're both third way ideologies, which claim to be against both communism and capitalism. They're, you know, for the state, they're for the homeland, they're for Islam. So I'll, I'll stop there, but that's just sort of give you a sense of what Turkish nationalism is is and you know we can move on from there awesome thank you so much for unpacking all that for us I wonder if you can lay out uh, the main differences between the political parties in turkey right now uh with erdogan's party akp and another party you mentioned the mehp uh, if you could describe the differences between those and, and where their current politics come sure from. sure so again with turkish with fascism in turkey uh really it formally started in the convergence of two sort of big thinkers, if you will. Um, one was a journalist named Nihal Atsiz, uh, and another was a young military colonel and putschist called Alparslan Turkesh. Um, Atsiz was a uh, very interesting and eccentric sort of character. He wrote mostly in newspapers in the 30s and 40s, and he was so obsessed with Nazism that he even started to sport a cyclone must you know, a haircut and tiny little mustache like Hitler. Um, he just had this sort of reverence for Der Fuhrer, if you will. And he also had this sort of interest uh, to an extent in, in Turkish animism or sort of paganistic practices. And he really saw that as a potential religious backbone to fascism. Um, but it was really Turkesh who was a bit more of a pragmatic sort of guy and a bit more skeptical of that. And he really just sort of pushed for just to simply accept Sunni Muslims as part of um, the fascist cadre he would develop. Now, it's important to note that obviously Turkey is you know, over 90% Muslim. Uh, Jews and Christians are extremely small populations. But within um, Islam, most of uh, those are, pro are professing Sunnis. The others are Alevis, which not to be mistaken with sort of Alawites in places like Lebanon or Syria. Um, Alawis are very uh, heterodox in their practice. And oftentimes, at least in the 20th century, they've kind of been linked more to, you know, left-leaning left nationalism of JHP 
And also they sometimes are perceived as being Kurds as well. So they're often out of the purview of membership um, for Turkesh. So to go back to it, Atsiz and Turkesh eventually sort of break up over some sort of spat. And Turkesh forms what is called the Nationalist Movement Party or the Milieci Hareket Partisi by the late 1960s. I believe it's 69, but 65, there was um, a party that was sort of uh, antecedent of it. And the MHP or MHP immediately gains a very strong foothold in Eastern and even parts of Central Anatolia. Uh, today, that remains the most significant of the fascist parties. The other is fairly recent, 2016. It's called the E Party of Meral Akshaner, who split from uh, Mehepe a few years ago. Um, so that's sort of a new one. Uh, it's it's really not very different from Mehepe. The, what sort of differentiates the two is the fact that with Akshaner's E Party, it is. Um, much more kind of millennial focused, much more kind of yuppie-ish, I want to say. And also they are very stridently against Erdogan. And so Erdogan doesn't really have much of an affiliation prior to um, uh, 2015. For the most part, he's sort of a a kind of center-right Islamist. I mean, he prefers the term Muslim Democrat, but again, that doesn't really mean much in the Turkish context. Uh, Erdogan's AK Party, which he developed, really was a split from um, the existing uh, parties called the Refa Partisi, which was led by uh, Erbakan, who was probably Turkey's first real Islamist prime minister in the 90s. Uh, AK Party kind of differentiates itself from the other Islamist organizations by the fact that it has really taken up neoliberalism as an important pillar uh, towards its you know, ways that it, it runs the Turkish economy and, and the market and, and approaches, you know, FDI and things of that nature. Um, the current formation of Mehepe after Turkash had, had died, I believe, or, or left the party in 97, um, Devlet Bacili, an, a, sort of an economist, took over the party reins and he kind of steered Mehepe away from this kind of explicitly fascist outlook to a much more grounded, pragmatic or practical sort of Turkish ultra-nationalism that it is today. And indeed, up until about 2015 or so, um, he clashed a lot with Erdogan. In fact, Erdogan went through uh, several periods where, you know, he he was sort of dismissing or denouncing nationalism. And I think by that, he really was targeting more of Mehepe's type. Um, It wasn't really until 2018 where you had all of a sudden this change of heart in both uh, Bacili of the Mehepe and Erdogan of, of Akepe, Uh, start to kind of form this alliance called the People's Alliance, I believe. And that was an electoral bloc to preserve Erdogan's, you know, condominium of power in Turkey against the National Alliance, which was Meral Akshaner's uh, E party, as well as the mainline JAP, the Democrat Party and the Felicity Party, which are sort of two minor parties in Turkey. So you've done an absolutely beautiful job of bringing us through this narrative of Turkish politics and Turkish identity. If you had a very specific trend that you wanted to talk about that you think is a cornerstone of what nationalism is, what would you say that would be? I suppose my list of Turkey's most pressing developments in the past 10 years is more or less the same as my list of the decade before that. That is to say, the continual 
degradation and erosion of state and democratic institutions in the republic, namely a free press, a free and critical university system, a robust trade union movement, um, and really sort of the average Turkish citizen almost kind of going, resenting, I suppose, a lot of the um, power grabs of Erdogan. Of course, there's still a significant supporting base. And if you believe statistics and figures of of electorate, um, people still like Erdogan. But I think that there is a growing sense, um, a growing sense, excuse me, of um, cynicism. Uh, and I think these institutions are important for the general health of any country. But for Turkey, what has been so troublesome is the fact that the country leads the world in the number of jailed journalists more than China. And in the wake of the July coup attempt of 2016, and I was there for it, you know, nearly a quarter of a million civil servants were arrested as part of being this, uh, as being part of this Gulen network. And this has sadly triggered a sort of brain drain in the country, especially after the snap elections of 2018, where once again, unsurprisingly, Erdogan was voted into the power into power with the backing of his own party, and as well as I said before, the MHP. I think the one strain of good news uh, that's coming out of Turkey has been the 2019 mayor election of JHP member Ekrem Islamoglu is now um, you know, leading Istanbul as the mayor, and. Really, that's significant because Istanbul has sort of long been seen as the gateway to the office of the prime minister, uh, or I suppose now presidency, since Turkey seems to have conflated the two positions under Erdogan. And uh, Erdogan himself, you know, knows how important winning Istanbul is. Uh, He was the mayor of Istanbul in the 90s, and he often said at that time that, you know, capturing Istanbul means capturing Turkey. And so, you know, even after all of their sort of usual electoral shenanigans that the AKP does, like invalidating votes, demanding a recount, attempts to nullify the elections, the result of the elections, um, Islam Olu still persisted and won. And that to me, and I think for many who really care about the fate of Turkey, that's a real massive relief. And I think it's nothing short of a silver lining. You know, I'm really glad you brought up the Istanbul mayoral election. The current mayor, Ismamolu, is in the opposition party to Erdogan's AKP, but Erdogan used to be the mayor of Istanbul. That's his old turf. And after this past election, where Ismamolu was put up against a recount and the election was challenged through the courts, he still persisted and he's, he still won the election. So I'm wondering, with this gust of wind in, in the sails of opposition to Erdogan in, in the largest city in Turkey, one of the largest cities in the world. Is this a changing of the tide? Are we seeing a change in Turkish politics that might not be so good for President Erdogan? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I am uh, optimistic that this is going to signify a change from the current sort of narrative of ideology. Uh, Islamolo's victory, and again, you know, the courts tried to, you know, nullify the vote. They tried, they did a recount. I mean, it was they were trying to pull up every desperate trick they could, the Ak Party, to make sure that Istanbul would remain in Ak Party hands. So, the fact that Islamolo persisted is is quite impressive, and really was a deep breath of relief, I think, for many many Turks, especially those 
in the urban centers. I think Erdogan and his sort of brand of whatever you want to call it, center-right Islamism, I think that's never really going to go away. I think a lot of uh, Turkey's politics, and this is sort of echoes across many other countries in the global south, there always tends to be this kind of strongman image. And I think what people like about Erdogan is that he kind of embodies what is termed as the uh, Kata Turk or the Black Turk. And by that is meant the sort of lower middle class Anatolian masses who were devout, they were religious, they wanted their daughters and wives wearing headscarves. You know, they were very skeptical of this kind of, you know, top down secularism and sort of elitism that was emanating from Ankara. So I think those people will always look to someone like Erdogan, as they did for Adnan Menderes in the 1950s in the Democrat Party, as they did for Suleiman Demirel throughout the uh, 70s as well, also of a center right persuasion, if you will. So the fact that Erdogan consciously taps into the memory and legacy of Menderes uh, is important, I think. So I think his ideas will always sort of be there. I think he's definitely opened up more of a wedge into the previous or acceptable politics of Turkey, similar to Erbakan did in, in the 90s. And so they'll always find somebody. If not, Erdogan will be somebody else. If not, AKP might be another party, a newer party for that matter. So we'll see. I mean, Istanbul is significant. Uh, we'll see whenever you know they decide to have more elections, whether or not you know the national alliance will will sweep them, or um, Erdogan and his ilk will you know buffer their attempts. Switching us a little bit away from domestic politics, what would you say are the implications of? this very clear rise in nationalism for Turkey and international politics, particularly how nationalism has blended into Turkish foreign policy? That's a great question because, you know, really it's, you know, domestically being a, a fascist in Turkey often seems like it's not going to go beyond the borders of the country itself. But there are a few instances where I can see uh, ultranationalism or fascism uh, broaching those areas. So um, for one thing, you know, the ongoing Syrian conflict, we saw a number of Turkish fascists um, join ranks with, you know, sympathetic groups in northern Syria. Um, previously, the Turkmen of Iraq are often seen as sort of the natural Turkish ally when dealing with the KRG, the Kurdistan regional government. And so um, a lot of these uh, Turkish fascist groups, uh, individuals as well, basically joined the fight against uh, the Kurdish YPG or YPG in northern Syria over the Rojava encounter and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, it's important to note here that with Turkish fascism, the initial, you know, during the Soviet period, um, the initial enemy was the far left co Turkish communists, Turkish social democrats. Um, with the collapse in the 90s of the Soviet Union, um, Turkish ultranationalism kind of perceives Kurdish nationalism or left-wing Kurdish nationalism as sort of an existential threat to uh, the Republic of Turkey. And so for them, you know, they want to fight the spread, if you will, of Kurdish revolutionary nationalism, both in Eastern Anatolia, as well as in Syria, or if need be, Iraq. And that's really a priority. Um, so that's how I see it impacting, you know, their immediate neighbors. Um, the second... There's an organization whom I'll speak to a little bit uh, more afterwards uh, called the Grey Wolves, the Bozkurtlar. And uh, the Grey Wolves are a sort of thuggish street element um, that is that sort of emanates from the Ojaks or the hearths or the sort of these sort of um, uh, 
how do you, how do I uh, describe them? You know, kind of like clubs basically of the Turkish far right. And so the Grey Wolves uh, basically beat up, you know, left-wing university students, they harass protesters, they'll run through Armenian neighborhoods and smash things or through Kurdish or Olivi neighborhoods. They're kind of a violent, you know, street gang. And the Grey Wolves weren't, aren't just limited to the confines of Turkey, but, you know, in the 60s when there was a sort of mass emigration from Turkey into Europe, Gastarbeiter as they call them, the guest workers, the politics came with them as well. And so, you know, amongst Turkish communities, the Grey Wolves can be found in places like Germany, the Netherlands, and in France. They will cause, they'll run amok. Uh, they will, you know, attack the, the police there. They'll just in general attack Turkish minorities. They don't really go after German citizens or, or folks of ethnic German background, I should say. But for the most part, they also play the same kind of thuggish role in Turkey as they do in Europe. And in fact, since Erdogan's sort of convenient marriage with MHP to get more votes for his party, he's obviously been calling himself as a nationalist. And so now when Erdogan or Turkey gets criticized by European leader, the Grey Wolves will be out there protesting or doing something. So for example, last month, or I believe in October, when the French president Emmanuel Macron spoke out against Islamism, and to which Erdogan shot a few barbs back his way, the Grey Wolves in France were targeted by the French government and effectively banned last month. So I think that some of the ultranationalism or Turkish fascism kind of exists in those two areas, really first and foremost against the Kurds just over the border in places like Iraq or Syria. Um, and then second of all, yeah, with this kind of street thug organization or gang, if you will, that sometimes will just sort of run amok and um, you know cause property damage and sometimes even kill people. So I'm really glad that you brought up the issue about borders. Uh, one of the things that Andrew and I are touching upon in our next episode is going to be uh, the Easter, Eastern Mediterranean and how Turkey's Blue Homeland strategy has been really working out or not working out. Uh, we're actually going to be sitting down with Suha Chubaktuolu, another fellow of ours from THO, who's going to be talking about the Eastern Med and Turkey's Blue Homeland strategy. So to tie into that, Joe... What trends do you see in Turkish nationalism that really lead into the conflict in the Eastern Med, particularly with regards to the EEDs, the Exclusive Economic Zones, prescribed by the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea or UNCLOS? I feel that in general, Turkey and Greece are going to have to at some point sit down again and talk about these spats over these tiny little rock islands in the Aegean that both are very uh, defensive over. I think that's going to have to, for one at least, be sort of hashed out. The other one, of course, is, you know, North Cyprus. You know, it's it that situation really does need to be a key factor in resolving it. Um, either the international community recognize Northern Cyprus or it doesn't. And of course, Turkey's sort of access to natural gas as well. I think those are going to be three big issues that will sort of be ongoing because they have been ongoing for a while now. I'm glad you brought up Turkey's bilateral relationships. Turkey's adventurism in different countries has been cause for concern for partners like the EU, NATO, and more specifically the United States. Turkey has its hand in a lot of pots right now, in Syria, Libya, the Eastern Mediterranean, and more recently in Nagorno-Karabakh. The past four years, President Trump has taken a laissez-faire stance on Turkey's engagements. Looking ahead to 2021, what do we expect from an incoming Biden administration? Do we expect a harder line from them? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for the incoming Biden administration, they're probably going to continue what Obama was doing 
um, with regards to Syria and Turkey's presence there. It's sort of critical approach to Turkey. You know, I think today it's it's safe to say that Turkey and the United States are at a you know natter at a low point. Um, they're kind of held together by a very tenuous set of circumstances, especially you know after this recent NATO conference where you know the U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo sort of lashed out against Turkey, especially over its purchase of Russian-made S-400. And aircraft missile systems and, you know, the Turkish foreign minister, Çavuşoğlu, kind of responding in, cli- in kind, always talking about how U.S. plays favorites with Greece and and so on. And so I think that one of the sort of, Ob- one of the sort of legacies of Obama with Turkey is going to be Biden's insistence on supporting Kurdish elements in northern Syria. And I think that's going to be very problematic because Erdogan, even though he had some scuffles with Trump here and there, he overall in- liked Trump. I mean, Erdogan, that's clear. It's, I think that's without dispute. So it's sort of hard to say what exactly it's going to be like, but I think here's, here's how I look at in terms of the key issue. I think the key issue is going to be Turkey's border integrity, as well as its position within NATO. Erdogan is able to whip up a lot of anti-NATO fervor in Turkey. Um, and it seemed at one point in 2016, right after the coup, it almost wanted to eject itself from it didn't. Obviously, it's still there. So I think what the U.S. has to sort of understand, though, is that Turkey by no means is ever going to give an inch when it comes to the YPG or Rojava or any of the kind of PKK affiliates in Syria. Turkey just, that's that's sort of a red line for the country. And I think the U.S. has to understand that, sure, you can support, you know, Kurdish militants in the area. They're very effective against ISIS. You know, I don't dispute that. I'm, most people don't. I'm sure the, Kur- the Turks do. But I think it's indisputable that they are effective. But again, as long as they take that role, it's going to really force a major cleave between U.S.-Turkish relations. I think that there's going to have to be some other areas of overlapping agreement that the U.S. can kind of tap into. I mean, for example, tourism, once you know COVID decides to sort of rescind into the dustbin of history, I think that having foreign currency from Americans coming in from tourism will be good. I'm sure that um, Trump's plan to increase FDI to Turkey, I think it increased significantly, at least under Trump to Turkey. I think if that was to be continued, that would be good. The review of the border, I think that's just not going to happen for the Turks. And quite frankly, I don't blame them. I mean, I think if there was an issue with the United States in a similar situation, the US would do what it what it can to protect the integrity of its borders. That's how I sort of see it. The US probably has to take a step back from the situation, reevaluate the alliance that it has and support Turkey's borders in such a way that it can continue being close ally. That's a great answer. Yeah, I think you're absolutely on the money with that, Joe. I think that about wraps it up for our first episode of Cold Turkey. Joe, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate no, your no. Time. I mean, look, it's it's my pleasure to be on. Um, you know, really, thanks. I think it's a great initiative you guys are are showing with this, and um, and I think the the topic of, of nationalism is important because I think in the Middle East, Turkey often gets sidelined a little bit, and I think we tend to see you know Islam Islamism for the Iranians and Arabs and nationalism for the Turks, but it's definitely um, a lot of contours and a lot of convergences between these different ideologies. So, you know, kudos to you guys for putting this together. It's been fun. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Uh, We are so grateful for this opportunity to just sit down and review these very complex dynamics of Turkish nationalism. I know I speak for Andrew when I say we are so appreciative of all of your experience and the depth of your knowledge on this topic. And it's just another indication that these issues aren't as straightforward as you might see in the news, which is why Andrew and I will be 
reviewing each of these discussions in future podcasts to digest and further discuss the many perspectives of all of these issues. So keep a lookout for that. Keep a lookout for our next episode with Suha of the Eastern Mediterranean and Blue Homeland. And we'll see you guys back here next time. Thank you so much.